Hello, and welcome to FinSight Global Financial Institutions Industry Podcast. My name is Pat McDonald, and I'm a tax partner at Baker McKenzie's Chicago office. I regularly advise U.S. clients, non-U.S. institutional and sovereign wealth clients on tax issues relating to private equity, infrastructure funds, and real estate funds. Our episode today is part of the ongoing Sovereign Series, Worlds in Motion, and the second of two episodes that takes a close look at sovereign wealth funds, our current observations of our sovereign clients' approach to tax governance and structuring. If you recall from our first episode, we provided an overview of the sovereign investor profile and approach to M&A tax in investing into the United States. In this episode, we will take a closer look at some of the European tax issues that are currently affecting sovereigns' investment activity, particularly the increasing volume of tax transparency requirements. Joining me today is the same esteemed panel that we had the last time. First, we have Diogo Duarte de Oliveira, a Luxembourg tax partner and managing partner of Baker Lux's tax team. Next, Guillaume Le Camus a partner in the Paris office of Baker McKenzie and in the tax group there. Next, James Burdett, a corporate partner in Baker's London office. And last but not least, Matt Legg, a tax partner in our London office who heads the Alternative Investments Tax subgroup. Thank you, panelists, for again for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for again for joining us. So let's jump right in to our Europe-focused discussion. As I briefly touched on earlier, there has been an unprecedented amount of law changes at the OECD, EU, and local country levels, including the clear direction of travel towards more responsible tax governance and tax transparency. Let me start with Diogo. Diogo, what from a policy and public perspective standpoint is driving all of these changes? Hi, Pat. Um, well, uh, although Europe is uh, open for business and the capital deployed by sovereign wealth funds in European assets is increasing, it is also true that uh, the European public opinion is vigilant. Uh, there is some public distrust that big business is paying its uh, fair share of tax. Tax authorities are more strict than in the past in, uh, due to budgetary constraints and have at their disposal new instruments to scrutinize some forms of aggressive tax planning. So the tax environment, as, as you said, has changed. Among the, the most prominent examples of changes are the transpositions into the EU member states' domestic laws of the two anti-tax avoidance directives, resulting in a new level playing field uh, comprising relatively harmonized rules uh, that go from interest deduction limitation rules, um, control foreign company rules that are new to some of the EU member states, uh, hybrid mismatch rules and a general um, uh, anti-abuse uh, rule. Um, in parallel, uh, in a world that is um, uh, always more transparent uh, as far as tax is concerned, uh, also relevant the, the introduction of a, a new mandatory disclosure regime across the EU, um, under which tax intermediaries uh, are required to report information on certain cross-border arrangements. 
to the local member state tax authorities, impacting the way investments are structured and, uh, and implemented. One uh, example, um, and this is a general trend that is motivated by multiple factors, but uh, one example would be that we see more and more investment vehicles migrating onshore to Europe to avoid uh, tax haven uh, jurisdictions. Also, the, uh, the BEPS uh, works from the OECD had a significant impact on, on the business uh, structuring. Um, uh, for instance, tax treaties were um, uh, globally amended through the multilateral instrument or the MLI culminating in a, a new treaty access threshold, the principal purpose test. Um, and uh, there is, of course, there is a result of the, the this and the, the environment, an increased focus on economic uh, substance. So to respond to, to the new landscape, sovereign wealth funds had to review old structures, adapt or reorganize their way of investing, replacing when possible multi-layered investment structures and being even more focused on real economic substance of their investment entities and organizing regional hubs with appropriate infrastructure, consolidating human and material infrastructure commensurate to their investment um, activities. Um, this is generally uh, uh, the, the trend uh, across uh, the EU and, and Europe. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Diogo. That is extremely interesting. And it certainly sounds like it is quite a lot going forward for both sovereign clients as well as their legal tax advisors to, to navigate. Guillaume, let me turn it over to you. How are you seeing our clients respond to these various changes? I think, as, as Jogo mentioned, one of the game changers here is transparency. Uh, transparency is the, is the new pillar of our international tax world. And, and this is a challenge for all international players. And especially for the sovereigns, because they are, they, are, they are sensitive to public disclosure and public perception. So one answer uh, among others to this challenge is to set a tax governance within each organization. So what, what would typically be a tax governance? Um, then a tax governance will, among other things, set the organization approach to tax matters in terms of risk assessment, uh, appetite to the risk, aggressivity, or, or, or being conservative. And that can be communicated both to the internal and external stakeholders, external stakeholders being maybe the tax authorities, but also the advisors of, of, the, of the fund. The, govern the tax governance will also manage tax exposure and, and the risk. Uh, it would control the flow of, of information. Uh, and, and we know that a lot of information is flowing outside of the organization, either through mandatory or voluntary disclosure. And that can go to the tax authorities, to the public, uh, to the advisors, um, and the like. And, and the, the tax governance model would also convey a message to the public when and if it is required. So our clients are, are taking this transparency matters very seriously, and, and we do work at the moment with uh, some of them to, to develop their own tax governance model. 
Guillaume, thank you so much for that. I'm going to turn it over to Matt now, just following along us on the same theme. So Matt, how, how do you think sovereign investors are approaching these changes or how should they be approaching these various changes? Yeah, thanks, Pat. Um, I mean, I look, investors across the, across the border are increasingly seeking to act more responsibly and um, sovereign wealth funds are no exception to that. Uh, and tax governance, uh, as Guillaume has said, um, is, is really central I think to that public perception, uh, and also the internal risk management. So it's um, it's it's very helpful on two fronts there. And tax governance is assessed really as a measure of sustainability, also, um, which is which is these days really a key area of focus for sovereign wealth funds as well. So I think it is worth focusing on. It is something we work on with our sovereign wealth fund clients. Um, if, if a fund does not have um, a form of published um, tax policy or tax governance, it's certainly worth considering that. Uh, sound tax governance, it really reduces um, the, the risk of, um, uh, of perhaps harming public perception and the perception perhaps of, of the external stakeholders such as the tax authorities. But as I say, it's also key in reducing the risk of unexpected tax charges um, within within the investments, uh, thereby you know impacting on the investment returns. Um, so so really, I think it's something that clients should be engaging with. Um, as we've said, you know, tax transparency really is the watchword now, and it, it's something that the the managers, for example, will look for as well when they're when they're looking um, for their investor base. So uh, I think it's a key. Tax transparency is just a, it's a key metric for sovereign wealth funds um, at the current time. Thanks, Matt. And, and I guess to that point, are you noticing any key ways in which the various law changes are having a direct impact on any of the transactions that you're advising? Yes, thanks, Pat. So I think I think it's worth spending some time here on a, on a particular area in, um, in Europe, which is, which is the anti-hybrid rules. Um, which has had a huge impact, I think, on uh, on sovereign wealth fund clients as well as others, um, and has sort of has sort of um, shifted the ground, I think, uh, in terms of information that needs to be provided and disclosures that are being asked of, of the sovereign wealth funds. Which, as we've as we've mentioned previously, you know, can be an area of sensitivity for for the sovereign wealth funds. Um, so, briefly, what are the anti-hybrid rules? So. As part of the OECD's BEPS program, um, specifically Action Point 2, um, the UK in particular was early to introduce um, domestic anti-hybrid rules in 2017. And pursuant to ATAD2 in particular, um, anti-hybrid rules are now being implemented across um, the EU member states. The rules are essentially um, geared towards counteracting tax mismatches. So between, particularly between um, jurisdictions or types of entities. So for example, you might have an income uh, deduction in one jurisdiction with no income inclusion in another. You might have a double uh, deduction um, with only one inclusion in another, in another state. Um, and, and the mismatch may arise because of 
hybrid entities. So an entity may be uh, transparent in one jurisdiction for tax purposes and opaque in another. Or you may have hybrid instruments. So an instrument may be treated as equity in one jurisdiction and as debt in another. Um, it's those it's those kind of um, those kind of mismatches between um, international tax regimes giving rise to um, different tax treatments, which has really been the focus of these rules. Um, usually, what the rules do is then identify sort of a particular mischief and seek to deny uh, a tax deduction for a type of payment in in one of the jurisdictions involved. Um, which essentially, which essentially, you know, kills that that type of planning. Um, what that means is, when when funds are coming to consider investments, is that um, often the the sponsors, the managers, will require certain kinds of information from the fund, from the investor, um, to work out if their structure, the fund structure, may cause there may be some hybridity in there. That may cause an issue for the um, for the investment itself, and so what we're seeing is, is that our clients, the sovereign wealth funds, are being um, provided often with sort of pro forma type questionnaires, um, which which require disclosure often of a, a wide range of information, and often that information is sort of broader than actually what is needed to uh, identify whether there is uh, a hybrid risk. So one thing that you know we've been involved in is is um, working with our clients to perhaps get on the front foot of this issue and um, prepare a kind of standard um, information memorandum uh, about the sovereign wealth fund and its structure that can be provided um, to um, to the managers to the sponsors to give them comfort on the on the on the hybrid rules um, and without and therefore kind of um, avoiding uh, any requirements to disclose information which is, you know, not particularly relevant to um, to get to the bottom of the, of the tax tax rules that are in play here. The other thing that you see is that um, which is new and which arises from rules such as the anti-hybrid rules is that um, if if your structure does cause an issue and that causes tax issues for um, the other investors or for the sponsors themselves. There's, there's a, we're being asked now to, or the funds are being asked to now provide indemnities to cover that kind of risk, and that's something also that requires, you know, heavy due diligence to understand what is the risk there, because of course, that's um, we, we want to minimise the um, the necessity for those kind of indemnities, um, and if if it can be if it can be determined that the risk is is minimal, then maybe such an indemnity is not appropriate from a sovereign wealth fund client in those in those situations. Um, so I think just to summarize, the, I think what the fund, the sovereign wealth funds can do and what the in-house tax teams can do, and this is where the increased sophistication um, of, of the, um, the in-house tax teams is very helpful, is that we get, is, is getting ahead of, of the issue, um, working out um, if there may be um, anti-hybrid concerns with the structures that we have and then looking to structure for that appropriately before it comes time to, um, to, to make the investment and to also work together to consider how, exactly how much information really is needed um, to be disclosed for something that's acceptable for both sides of the transaction.
Matt, thank you very much for that. Very helpful. And that's only with respect to one rule, which is the UK anti-hybrid rules. And there are a lot of other rules and law changes to take into consideration in today's landscape. So let's pivot a little bit right now to another area that is of great importance to sovereigns and also it has a link to tax issues, and that is treaty benefits. Guillaume, I understand that there is an increasing sensitivity as to how to access treaty benefits in a transaction structuring context. Can you give us some insights on this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, the, 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 there has been a number of developments from BEPS to the 881 and 2, and we know there are more to come, actually, uh, that have significantly raised the bar to treaty access for funds. So the number one issue, which is not exactly new for funds, that they subject to tax requirements. Obviously, most of the funds and the sovereigns are not subject to tax, so that 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 is significant issue. And you have that that condition in the majority of the tax treaties. Even though it's interesting to note that the most recent treaties, uh, but also historically treaties with a number of jurisdictions like from the Middle East, do not include that requirement. And and there is also a a, a growing trend, I think, is that a number of jurisdictions are offering domestic resulting tax exemption for funds just to resolve that, that treaty access issue. So they, 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 this is a key structuring point for funds, but, but there are way around and, and, and there are positive rules that are developing here. I think a more challenging uh, development here is the that's the beneficial test and all the general anti-abuse rules that have been included into the tax treaties through the multilateral instruments. And those rules do not target the funds directly, but they, they, they do target the intermediate holding companies that are sitting between the funds and the assets. So all those layer of holding companies that we can see in a number of structures. Um, so a lot of them are at risk at this moment because they will not be offered treaty benefits, mainly because of the beneficial test is, is, is not met or just because the purpose is, is there is no purpose for those companies except maybe treaty shopping. Uh, so there are a number of ways to adjust to it, but mainly and the, the number one recommendation is to align the legal structure on the business organization so there can be a purpose to each of the vehicles that are used into a, um, a structure. One other, and I think Diogo touched base a bit on that, is to regroup the assets and the resources into one single entity to give more purpose to that entity. And we know that historically, funds had a uh, some some enthusiasm in creating a lot of structures so that each of them would have a single effect or a single objective. So there is a clearly a, a benefit now trying to regroup all those into a minimum of vehicles to give them uh, to to bring them in a more robust position. And then, when possible, and it's it's not always possible, when, when possible, trying to have a, a more active management from the assets. Uh, of the assets from those intermediate holding vehicles. So this is a real challenge for the industry at the moment. Uh, and, and we are helping a number of our clients to adjust their existing structures to be stronger on, on 3D benefits. 
Guillaume, thank you very much for that. And last but certainly not least, I'm going to turn it over to you, Diogo. I understand that there's an increasing number of EU-led transparency measures that our sovereign clients need to be aware of and need to be thinking about, uh, including, for example, public CBCR and the proposed regulations to address any distortions caused by any kind of foreign subsidies that facilitate the acquisition of EU companies. Can you just uh, tell us a little bit more about these measures and especially in the context of uh, impact on sovereign investors? Sure. Sure, thanks, Pat. So uh, we, I would start with with um, uh, DAX six, the the mandatory disclosure regime for EU tax uh, intermediaries. Um, the main purpose uh, of this uh, directive that was transposed in domestic law uh, across the EU member states is to increase transparency. It is a priority of uh, uh, tax policy. Uh, providing tax authorities with uh, early information regarding potentially aggressive tax planning schemes. And so this is a, a piece of legislation that sovereign wealth funds um, should be in control of, um, uh, is a process that needs to be um, uh, monitored since uh, the beginning of the process of designing uh, or considering a, an investment uh, structure. Um, the, 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 the legislation works in a way that EU tax um, intermediaries uh, must report arrangements that come within at least uh, one allmark, um, one of the allmarks set forth in, in the law. Uh, these allmarks are uh, features that um, uh, are commonly seen in aggressive uh, tax planning uh, arrangements. And some of the all marks are uh, a relatively higher uh, threshold to, to be met. That is the, the main benefit uh, test. So many all marks are subject to an additional uh, test, the main benefit test, the purpose of which is to filter out irrelevant uh, disclosures. And this main benefit test is fulfilled if it can be established that the main benefit or one of the main benefits is the obtaining of a tax advantage. Um, so as uh, Guillaume was uh, mentioning, it is very important to um, bring together the uh, tax efficiency or the tax performance and the the business uh, rationale and the commercial rationale of of these investment uh, structures to to stand scrutiny. Uh, another piece of legislation is the public CBCR. Um, it has been in the EU policy agenda since 2016, and um, on um, June uh, one uh, uh, this year. Um, a provisional political agreement has been reached uh, and um, a direct proposal was uh, put forward. Um, basically, uh, what uh, the directive uh, does is to bring the country-by-country um, -country reporting uh, public. So it's information that will not only uh, be available like DAC6 to tax authorities, uh, but uh, it is the reporting uh, public, publicly um, uh, 
uh, of um, uh, certain uh, information. The, the, the directive uh, proposal uh, uh, requires that uh, EU-based companies or non-EU-based companies doing business in the EU uh, through a branch or, or uh, uh, subsidiaries with consolidated revenues exceeding uh, 750 million um, for uh, two consecutive years to disclose publicly the uh, income taxes paid and other information and other information such as the breakdown of profits revenues business activities and employees per country in each member state as well as for certain uh, third countries on the EU list of non-comparative jurisdictions. So, uh, again, uh, additional scrutiny on uh, offshore uh, 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 jurisdictions. And uh, it is important to note that there are no reporting uh, exemptions um, uh, as it stands uh, the, the proposal for any specific type of uh, uh, investment fund structures or for sovereign uh, wealth uh, funds. Uh, finally, the, the notifications uh, uh, to the EU, there is a, a proposal um, uh, um, that uh, to protect the, the single um, uh, market and avoid distortions, um, that certain uh, uh, entities acquiring uh, businesses in the EU would have to, to notify the European Commission uh, of um, any uh, uh, grants, uh, exemptions, uh, benefits, uh, subsidies, um, and uh, and these will certainly uh, need to to be taken into account by sovereign wealth funds, which uh, typically will benefit from, uh, for instance, uh, uh, privileged or special tax uh, regimes, and these these may trigger such type of notifications. So uh, um, transparency and disclosures leg uh, legislation um, should uh, keep being monitored that. Diogo, thank you very much for that explanation. Um, we're going to wrap up our episode today with just a final couple of quick thoughts as to what the post-pandemic landscape looks like for sovereign investors, especially in light of all the rapid changes in the legal requirements and tax requirements in Europe. So I'm going to turn it over to James first to provide a, a general macroeconomic and legal oversight, and then turn it over quickly after that to Diogo uh, to give some quick insights from a tax perspective. James, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Pat. Um, and, and thank you for inviting me to talk on a, on a non-tax topic, which is um, refreshing, given uh, I'm not the expert here when it comes to tax. But I, I have seen a lot of sovereigns um, transacting over the last couple of years, and it's been really interesting to see what's been changing as a result of the pandemic. And now that we seem to be uh, moving into a, let's call it a post-pandemic environment, and uh, we all obviously hope it is, um, I think, on the whole, from an investment perspective, it's looking really good for sovereigns. Their appetite for deploying large capital tickets seems pretty much unquenchable, and there are plenty of interesting opportunities. And I think for as long as you've got um, private equity infrastructure, real estate funds, and so on with, let's face it, you know, decade-long maximum 
investment horizons, there's always going to be a sovereign there waiting to acquire those assets on a more permanent basis or indeed co-invest alongside the, 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 the private equity managers. So apart from the traditional areas that we talked about in the last podcast, I think the really interesting development in the last year or two has been an increasing appetite for venture and tech investments. And venture in particular has long been a problematic area for sovereigns, uh, not because they don't like the investments that are on offer, but because the ticket sizes have tended to be far too small for them. However, two trends have combined to make this sector much more compelling. First, the significant growth in the tech sector, which has long been the poster child of the venture space, as we all know, as an attractive investment target for sovereigns. And secondly, the much larger amounts of capital being deployed into venture investments and growth investments, which means that sovereigns can afford to deploy a material amount of capital in each of these investments. I think there's a lot more to be seen here. And uh, the pace of change is, 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 is rapid, as we all know, not only in fintech and health tech, but really technolo- technological innovation across a whole range of different sectors, whether real estate, industrial sectors, or, or, or any others. So I, I think we're seeing uh, a huge growth in this area. We're also seeing some sovereigns uh, actively incubating uh, tech companies in their own jurisdictions. And we've seen that in the Middle East uh, recently on a few transactions we've been involved in. So in short, sovereigns simply can't afford to stand on the sidelines in the rapidly developing segment of venture and tech. And I think uh, we're going to see a lot more developments there. Thank you so much, James. And finally, Diogo, what do you think the post-pandemic landscape is going to look like for sovereigns from a tax perspective? Well, I think that um, uh, in in a nutshell, summarizing what we said earlier, uh, it is a new tax landscape, uh, more transparent, and the uh, sovereign wealth fund response must be uh, 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 must continue to be tax efficiency, but uh, with an important tax risk control, with uh, strong tax compliance uh, diligence. Um, and um, tax-efficient decisions or tax planning must be justified by clear commercial and business drivers, drivers articulated with real economic substance. Um, this this will be a key to to perform well in the new in the new tax world. Well, thank you very much, Diogo. And thank you to our whole esteemed panel of speakers today. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners. If you found this podcast helpful, you might be interested to check out our ongoing Sovereign series, Worlds in Motion, where we map the post-pandemic landscape for sovereigns globally. You can also check out all of our relevant sovereigns resources on our website at bakermckenzie.com. My name is Pat McDonald, and thank you again for listening. Bye-bye.